Hi there, I'm Andy Bush. I hope you're listening along with uh, suitably subtle lightning. Uh, welcome to Scarred for Life, a deep dive into the dark dystopian pop culture of the 1970s, 80s and beyond. Uh, I'm joined, of course, as ever by Steve Brotherstone and David Lawrence, co-authors of the terrifyingly, uh, terrifying Scarred for Life books upon which this podcast is based. Every week we'll be speaking to a special guest who will be bringing with them three horrific childhood memories of something that has literally scarred them for life. And today we are honoured to welcome... Our first proper guest. Huge pressure on this man to perform because, uh, you know, the green light as to whether this continues is based on his performance. Only joking. It's the brilliant wow. Jamie Anderson. Uh, now full of performance anxiety. Thank you so much for that. And uh, I'm honoured to be your inaugural guest. Thank you. No, Sorry you couldn't find you on. special. Well, Jamie was born at the height of the 80s Cold War paranoia, but that hasn't let him. Sl- that hasn't slowed him down. As a writer, director and producer, he's worked with uh, audio company Big Finish on a number of their ranges, including Doctor Who and various releases based on shows created by his father, Jerry Anderson. Uh, as director of Anderson Entertainment, Jamie continues to honour the legacy of his father, Jerry's prodigious output so that future generations can love Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet and many, many more as have so many children and adults already. Uh, As producer and on-screen presenter, Jamie was intimately involved in the 2022 film Jerry Anderson, A Life Uncharted, a moving look at the man behind so many TV favourites. Jamie, welcome to Scarred for Life. What was it like growing up uh, for you having such an iconic father? Uh, Completely normal for me. I'm afraid. Uh, that's the strange thing, isn't it? People often ask me that. And it's always like, well, I know, I know no different. Um, you know, everybody's dads and parents when I was growing up seemed to be doing something interesting. It's just that mine was maybe do, doing something more broadly interesting-er. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, no, it was intoxicating. Very exciting childhood. Going to Pinewood Studios and Bray and just seeing ideas come to life. I think that's something that stayed with me ever since. So when did you get a sense that your, your dad was different? Because, you know, I imagine when kids are at school, they, they talk about, you know, dads maybe working in factories or working in pubs or restaurants or, you know, uh, it must have been when you were then comparing what your dad was doing, you realised that there's a slightly different career path going on in your household. Well, you say that, but sometimes I realised that he was actually out of work at the time. So <laughs> there's part of, part of me kind of at six years old going, well, actually, I think he's, he's unemployed at the moment. Uh, which kind of is, is at odds with what you'd expect, <laughs> I guess. Um, but once we, once he got round to Thunderbirds being re-shown in the early nineties, uh, ninety-one, I was, I mean, I was at school, and my school friends were watching this show, and their parents were re-watching this show, and they were all kind of enjoying it and excited about it and asking me about it, and I didn't really know a huge amount, but I did know that Dad was the producer in inverted commas, whatever that meant. I didn't know at that age. Um, so yeah, that suddenly my dad's work mattered to my friends and their parents and in some cases their grandparents as well um which which put him on a, a bit of a pedestal in their eyes um but i think you know you, you don't really think your dad's cool when you're, when you're sort of seven eight nine years old you, you you're out of that zone uh, and were you always going to follow, you know, in his footsteps? I mean, what would have happened as a sliding doors moment if you'd become a plumber or a Premier League football player, Jamie? What would they have been like? Oh, dear. Um, well, I'm glad, I'm glad I asked at the start of this what I could talk about and what would be appropriate for your audience. Uh, so I, I really wanted to do all this sort of stuff since I was, well, as early as I can remember, because, like I say, that, that whole idea of taking a thought, taking a concept which is completely new and completely fresh and making it real to share with others is just such a cool thing that that was exciting from day one and then seeing people making 
spaceships and sets and guns on space precinct, mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff um, was just so exciting that I wanted to do it. And then uh, I started saying to dad, I want to I want to do what you do when I grow up. And he said, no, you don't. No, you don't. You need to do something else. You need to think of something better. And this went on for years and years and years, uh, even into my to my teens, where I kind of formulated this plan. I was going to go to uh, to do an art degree and I was going to go in via uh, concept design, production design. And then maybe that way kind of end up in the kind of producer seat eventually. And when I was about 17, I kind of had this all set set in my mind. Um, he said, have you decided what you want to do? And I said, I still want to do, you know, what you do, but via this route. And he said, um, the industry is full of assholes, and I'm not having you doing it. So if you wow. try, I will make sure every door is slammed in your face. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> Which at wow. the time, particularly when you're in your teens, is a bit a bit ouchy, for sure. It's trying to protect you, though, right? Well, there you go. Great read. See, it took me a long time to realise that. Um, I would say there were several years of, of being quite frustrated by his reaction. What Was he right? <laughs> no, no, I'm genuinely curious. You've, you've, you've really put me on the spot there. Um, <laughs> name and no names, so obviously. Name names. <laughs> I, no, no, I, I, I think in any industry, if you are pushing the boundaries or if you're high enough up in it where you're setting the tone or setting the path you are going to come across assholes. It's unavoidable. Yeah. I mean, it's unavoidable yep. in the human race in general, but it's, be- it's because he was doing something groundbreaking and, and doing that that he came across those people. And I think he could be one as well sometimes, to be you know, <laughs> frank. So, did, did you find it, his name Open Doors for you as well? I mean, <laughs> you, again, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, so I have to say when... So, uh, in the intervening years, I actually worked in horse breeding, but we can skip over that. He was immensely <laughs> wow. more proud of me working with, uh, you know, inseminating mares than he, he would have been if I was working in the industry, which is a bit crazy. The inseminating mares years, you can call yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> let's, but let's skip over that, shall we? Um, so when he was he was uh, unwell, obviously, with Alzheimer's disease in the last few years of his life, and, and I moved back home and helped mum care for him, and the, the, the dementia gradually stripped away the kind of worried part at the front of his his mind that you know the, your sort of prefrontal cortex that p- looks into the future and goes oh god these terrible things might happen i feel like we'll touch on this later um and he said about six months before he died do you know it's such a shame you didn't come into the family business oh and that moment of realization no. at that point was kind of lovely but also kind of torture um mm. so we tried working together a bit and his his ability to read and write was fading with the the dementia and then he he died at the end of 2012 mm. and mum and I discussed whether it was time to kind of call all that stuff a day or carry on um I I will get to your point Dave I promise I'm oh, that's fine. That's it's just the, the pre-ramble to that um and we decided to carry things on because that that flame for wanting to create stuff was still burning and I could see how much his work meant to people you know all the messages we received after he died and all that kind of stuff so I foolishly assumed that the whole of the entertainment and media industry was was just waiting for somebody to come in and say look we've got all these Jerry Anderson things do, do you want to do something with them and and I I don't think I could have been more wrong. It's really fascinating um, the the journey of the last decade, where yes the name does open doors. It certainly firmly slams others. Um, yeah. um, I would say twenty percent of them actually um, that results in an absolute no. So the door gets open, which is which is an amazing thing. And you know I'm very grateful for nepotism in this particular case. 
but the problem then is you go in and there's a preconception people have thought about this stuff for a long time and and they think i know what i want out of this encounter with an anderson and it's normally something which is either impossible or at odds with what we're trying to do um and so yes it opens doors but it actually in many cases it has blocked opportunities and made life mm. really really tricky so you know that's not me being ungrateful and I, it's certainly a, an amazing leg up in many ways yeah but i i really honestly thought the industry can't wait for more anderson and um the industry absolutely could wait for more anderson apparently <laughs> learn the hard way see i i, I would I, just I, assume i would just assume that every single property is so beloved by mm. pretty much every single generation you would just assume yeah. that people were like, no, no, absolutely, more, please. Yeah. But- and the, the, re- the reasons why I think are, are complex and, you know, um, yeah, they're many and complex. Yeah. I think, I, I think there's, there's a lot of baggage that comes along with, with puppetry in particular. Yeah. Um, you know, Th- Thunderbirds and Stingray and Captain Scarlet in the UK, they've got a kind of lovely cult status and they took themselves quite seriously. But culturally, we are much more prepared for puppetry than the US and that's the biggest oh, market wow. in the US you look at their history with puppetry it is generally uh, fantastical creatures animals and whenever it's a human it's always almost always a figure of comedy yeah so to try and sell something dramatic with puppetry or with puppetry roots into the US is really hard that's just one example of these kind of cultural quirks where to us I think to most most people of a certain age by which I mean really kind of over 25 I would say in the UK there's, yeah. there's an awareness and a sort of almost a reverence for lots of people some people are creeped out by the puppets but we kind of we kind of love it and get it but most other countries they just don't well that's the thing I put together a Captain Scarlet supercut for Twitter that was basically about 40 of the horrible death scenes in a I have, I big have montage it, it is, yeah it is perfectly representative of that incredibly violent children. Thank you very much. But I find pretty much every single reply from an American follower says, oh, Team America, world please. That's, that's, the, oh. that's their kind oh. of reference point for puppetry. I mean, yeah. How do you feel about that, Jamie? Well, um, as someone once slightly offensively tweeted to me, I have to say and comment about that, Jerry Anderson is turning in his grave and getting very tangled. Um, <laughs> the, I mean, he was created, so that's completely inappropriate and inaccurate. But the, uh, the, the whole thing with, with that is Team America sealed the fate of, of puppetry around the world. Oh, wow. I, that's my belief, because it, it took that form of puppetry. And whatever people say... Trey and Matt, who the South Park guys who did that, they were not making Team America as a love letter to Thunderbirds. They had seen bits of Thunderbirds and thought, this is the craziest, stupidest way to make a TV show. We have to make a movie this way because it's just going to be ridiculous. And so they they elevated every fault of those those puppets, that style. They they mocked it completely relentlessly. And so now... Uh, you know, an entire generation's touchpoint for puppetry is Team America and is completely down to comedy and ridiculousness. And they often see that as the, you know, the, 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 the roots, the, the start, the patient zero of puppetry for them is Team America. So then they see Thunderbirds, which was obviously made, you know, 40 years before. Yeah. And they think it followed. And, oh, God, it's like a really boring Team America. 
Wow, so, that's fascinating. Fascinating yeah. it has that effect on you as well. That's unbelievable. And, and before we get to your, your scars, Jamie, and find out stuff that, uh, things that have scared the bejesus out of you mm. from when you were a kid, uh, Dave, are you able to just, for the uninitiated, give us a little kind of pricey of, of the importance of, um, of Jerry Anderson's work, Space 1999, yes. Captain Scarlet, etc.? I think Jerry Anderson's work is basically everybody's childhood. I mean, anybody who's listening to this who's of the generation that we are, it's our childhood. It's everything. I mean, I was in the 70s, I was in school, and we had Christmas first, and I'd be buying TV 21 annuals from the 60s, and I'd be trying to build a, a Captain White, sorry, a Colonel White uh, SPV, uh, special pursuit vehicles from cardboard boxes in my living room. Uh, it was, it was just, it was, I mean... Stingray was on, I think, every morning of the back of holidays, kids' holiday when we were on holiday and from school. Thunderbirds um, was sort of the long form version of of some of the programs I was watch- watching. Uh, it was, it was. I still buy stuff about Stingray and Thunderbirds, and I'm what fifty eight now, and it's <laughs> it's it's it was it's a wonderful thing he did. It's just a wonderful legacy he's left, and it's just. Every time we do, let's say, a tweet or a Facebook post about these programs, about these amazingly brilliant programs, there's so much love for them mm. from everybody. There's just so much love. I mean, I personally think there's there's an arc to Jerry Anderson's productions where they get darker as you go along. They just get darker oh, yes. and yeah, darker, definitely. Uh, which we will talk about, I think. Um, you start off, you know, with Supercar and then Stingray and then you've got Thunderbirds, which is all very upbeat and positive, you know, when Thunderbirds basically says... Civil engineering projects are going to go wrong, but don't worry about it. And then you're starting to get to Captain Scarlet, where essentially uh, people are murdered and replaced by suicide bombers. Essentially, and then it's you get darker. getting darker, and then you get UFO, where people are having organs ripped out by aliens. And um, in the first episode of UFO, there's a woman machine gunned to death on screen. Uh, you know, she just flies yeah. backwards with bullet holes in it. It's just, it's, and this was. And I think TV TV uh, schedulers thought, yeah, it's it's it's, it's a kid show. Let's put it on eleven in the morning. It's eleven in the morning. You're sitting there, you know, eating a late breakfast, and there's a woman machine gun to death on screen. It's fantastic, <laughs> absolutely. Different so yeah. Times. So to answer the question, yeah, it's 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 my childhood. It's it's many people's childhoods, and I think it's fantastic. Well, listen, Jamie, how this podcast works, you bring with you three things that have scarred you for life. Uh, Jamie, could we please get your first scar? You. <laughs> Can I just preface this by saying that I realised, having, having gone through my memory bank and, and pulled out these horrible things from my childhood, um, they are actually all related to Dad. So, <laughs> this is I, therapy. This I'm is a bit of slightly therapy worried that this is going to come across as either a character assassination of him <laughs> or as a, some weird therapy session for me. And I mean, maybe it is slightly both, but you know, in the nicest possible way. Of course. Um, so, uh, my my first thing is is horror movies with dad at six years old. Wow! Right. Wow. Um, and and there are three in particular that I recall watching multiple times and i on reflection i think maybe they were not the best thing to expose a six-year-old to um so we had <laughs> tremors which is horror but with a comedy edge i guess so that is fine arachnophobia and the thing the thing wow. at, what a trio at six whoa yeah, I mean, not back to back, obviously, but I'm talking kind of, 
you know when they when they, they, these things would arrive on TV or they would be shown you know repeatedly at kind of Christmases end end of year or in holidays that kind of thing. They would be the things where he would kind of make it this special treat where I could become frightened in a controlled environment. <laughs> Inoculated <laughs> in many ways. Perhaps. To fear. Perhaps. I'm not sure that quite carries for arachnophobia in particular. Because um, uh, I, de- I definitely wasn't scared of spiders as a kid. But I- I'm pretty sure that set me on a path to becoming that. And I'm still <laughs> undoing that even now, 30 odd years later. So are you, are you quite scared of, are you scared of spiders now uh, in, the, in the present day, Jamie? Um, I mean... Less so. It's I'm, I'm, I try to be very kind of logical and, and scientific in my methods to looking at life. Uh, and so I, I, every, every, every kind of day is a, a, an effort to overcome those things like fear of heights or falling and spiders. Uh, and I'm definitely a lot better now than I was. But I mean, <laughs> for a long time afterwards, you know, a, a spotting a spider in the bathroom or the shower would mean instantly I would have to run out and leave the room and not go back in until it had been checked to make sure yeah. it was clear. I'm slightly better than that now. Um, <laughs> but those those things had such a profound effect in just in terms of f- fear, my ability to watch that sort of film uh but also, I, I think uh, on potentially creativity and what what uh, ha- how powerful an idea could be to uh, to uh, affect you like that. Well, I mean, like you know, the the thing is is one of the scariest films I think I've ever seen. I, I mean, that really did absolutely scare the life out of me when I was a kid. What, what do you think about that, Steve? You, did you watch The Thing? Were you terrified of it? It's my second favourite horror film ever, after Hellraiser. <laughs> Basically, I am, I've been a horror obsessive since before I can remember. And I was kind of a teenager in the video nasty era, which I, I was completely obsessed with gore at that point. I saw The Thing when I was 13. A mate of mine mm. rang me up during summer holidays excitedly rang the, you know, the big Bakelite phone in the hall. And he was kind of jabbering over the phone saying his mum and dad had gone out for the, the entire day. He had the, the thing on copy and come round now kind of thing. So I was so yeah. excited. And I, <laughs> the thing is, I'm, I still am incredibly squeamish, horror obsessive. He was completely squeamish. 13 years old and it completely wrecked my head. I kind of had the peer pressure of not, wanting to appear soft in front of me mate because word, word would spread around the playground but I did spend most of my time watching The Wall there's a bit if anyone hasn't seen the thing or those who have where a dog splits open splits in half yes. and I was like they've killed a dog for real how did you what did you both make of that what did you make of it as a six year old well that's see the dog thing in particular because at the time we had a, um, a black Labrador cross mongrelly thing called Bruce. And I loved Bruce. Bruce was my, you know, my hero. And, and I'd, I'd never, never thought of a, a dog's death, even. It had never crossed my mind. Good, good. And now suddenly, in the most horrific way possible, <clears throat> this thing is being, uh, you know, displayed in front of me. And my young mind can so easily imagine that happening to my beloved Bruce. So, yeah. Quite Poor a, Bruce. I was going to say the same like, thing. That's the same scene that gets me, the dog peeling open. It's just, it's just yeah. I mean, wow. the hu- humans, like the guy whose legs come off, don't care. The guy whose head crawls across, don't care. Dog <laughs> peeling open, that's me, I'm gone. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 
So, I mean, do you, do you, do you think of it as like um, important um, building blocks for that's, that's had a good, that's, you know, th- those films in that kind of controlled environment, as you said, Jamie, has got, you know, has had an effect on you in terms of your approach to um, the macabre or, or the other side of, you know, horror, etc. Yeah, I mean, I, I think just purely on a personal side with Dad, it was quite nice because it was the kind of bonding a bonding time, bonding moment. And he was so busy working all the time that to, to have this moment where he was like, come on, I'll, I'll let you into a world you shouldn't be allowed to see. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll be here and it's, you know, it's fine. And I think he enjoyed me, you know, jumping and uh, getting spooked by it. Uh, how, so, sorry, how did he, how did he watch the films? Really? Did he criticize the angles, the, 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 the camera <laughs> angles, the lighting? Did he, was he, well, no, was he directing them? I, th- I think I think generally he would be I- impressed by the way things were done, mm. you know. So kind yeah. of the, the 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 puppetry kind of animatronic type stuff in the thing in particular, I think he was he was fairly impressed by. Um, but he was never he was never outwardly watching things with a critical eye. Um, and actually, he made a real thing of not watching other people's work. Generally speaking. Oh really? Because he he didn't want to be influenced by it. That was his one of his big things. So particularly if there was something that was even genre adjacent to science fiction and, and action adventure, he would generally try to avoid it. So who um, who was he influenced by then? Do you think? God, that's really tough. I mean, I, he. I mean, if he was talking to you now, he'd probably probably say just childhood viewing. You know, kind of. Um, uh, mo- movies of the late 1940s and very early 1950s, I would say, pro- probably. Um, I mean, his his reference point was always the kind of epics like Ben Hur. Um, oh wow! Okay. Yeah, it was a big, big scale stuff. But I think I think he really kind of cut cut his teeth in terms of style and influence when he was doing his editing jobs um, early on. So I'm sure if you you know watch Devil Girl from Mars or something where he was the <laughs> The sound editor, and you know, was watching that on repeat. I'm sure you'll see things that end up being being borrowed there for later on. Um, but I think he, you know, he would have liked to think he was very much his own his own person. So horror, horror was far enough away from what he was doing. I mean, you may disagree, having watched Captain Scarlet or UFO, um, <laughs> but generally speaking, he felt, I think he felt it was far enough away that it was a it was a controlled environment creatively for him as well. Yeah, uh, Steve, you wanted to pick up on on Captain Scarlet in particular. Yeah, well, it was Captain Scarlet. This is the weird thing. I only realised this during writing Scarred for Life books. Realised a lot of stuff about myself, but loved everything growing up. But it was Captain Scarlet, UFO and Space 1999 were the three that really connected with me. Mm. And they are the three darkest, bleakest, most horrific works that your, your dad did, which obviously must say a lot about me I know I love horror but Captain Scarlet you've got the kind of as Dave said the suicide bombings there's there's always that theory online that the Mysterons were right they were basically the wow. victims of a surprise attack and um, they were just acting in retaliation It didn't shy away from showing blood. It didn't shy away from... Nope. Basically, Captain Black is a zombie. 
coming and attacking people every week. And yeah. even down to the beautiful, I think it was Ron Embleton, of, was it Frank, Ron Embleton paintings at the end that yeah, showed yeah, the entitled cards Captain Scarlet about to get impaled by spikes and bitten by snakes. Yes. It was, but, it, but this is what kids want. This, this yes. is what they oh, want. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You've got UFO. Um, for me, the thing that got me about UFO, even though I loved the aliens and the technology, it was a very human show. It was the, mm. the emotional stuff. One of my favorite episodes of any science fiction show ever is, it's called The Question of Priorities. And I don't yeah. want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen this. <laughs> but it's basically about Commander Straker, who's in charge of Shadow, protecting the Earth from alien invaders. And that's almost a backdrop to the main story, which is he has to choose between saving his son's life and his duty to the planet Earth. And I don't want to spoil it, but by God, it doesn't go well. <laughs> and it really does <laughs> as a kid. Do you know the thing that upset me the most about UFO? It's breathing that green liquid. Mm. Oh I, God! When I was when I was little, I didn't learn to swim because I was chucked into the swimming pool by the swimming instructor, and it's like in a very brutal <laughs> first lesson. And so that that idea of swallowing liquid that just really freaked me out. The whole thing. Yeah, there's this yeah. one with uh, Paul Foster where he I think he you think he dreams it, but it's where he thinks he's been converted into an alien and he coughs the liquid. Oh yeah, that was that was that was it for me. The effect all these years on is uh, is, is unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely, it, it is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I've got I've got some great. We have, we came across some fantastic behind the scenes stuff. Of, of one I think it may have been from that episode where Foster's spitting out the green yeah. liquid uh, and I think the, the there's a moon based girl it might be Gabrielle Drake who's near, nearby and obviously wasn't expecting him to spit it quite so far so there's great images of her <laughs> wincing and backing off and <laughs> laughing as this green stuff is spraying out of his mouth uh, but yeah I mean it's a really disturbing thought and when they did this, yeah. the effects of the green liquid rising mm. up in the helmet uh, yeah see kind of I mean, he was doing, Dad was doing horror before he was watching it, I suspect. <laughs> Colonel Foster's general physical condition is satisfactory, considering what he's just been through. But he's in an alien spacesuit. He's breathing liquid. Well, we can make the transfer back to normal breathing. Huh. Oh, come on now, you've done it before. Yes, with aliens, Alec. And none have survived more than a few hours. Wow, I mean, that's really interesting. It's that kind of the green liquid always reminded me of kind of fairy liquid, like a thick, <laughs> thing. But that's it's interesting, fairy liquid. interesting what you said about what your dad kind of allowing you to watch very adult horror films as a treat. Mm. That makes perfect sense to me, I've got to say, because, <laughs> of, because of the stuff that connected with me as a kid. It was, yeah. I mean, Space 1999's concept is very bleak, kind of cast out into the cold, dark of space. Yeah. But so. that show, I think we'll come back to this a little bit later, had its sci-fi horror elements throughout, including one episode which I've always said would stand alone as a horror film by itself, The Dragon's Domain. Yeah, that's Wonderful the one that episode. made a generation of bedwetters right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what an accolade. <laughs> uh, um, Jamie, do you, do you have any... We're talking about some of these amazing things that appeared in, in your dad's work. Have, mm. you, have you got any kind of special uh, things that were handed down to you by your father that you keep as like a, in an amazing memento of what he achieved? This is the real kind of sad thing with him, and we, we delve into it in the, in the documentary a bit. So this, I think this all kind of goes back to nostalgia, right? So we all... We all love a bit of nostalgia there's a there's an escape there's happy memories there's kind of just revisiting something that has has positive meaning for us or negative possibly um 
but 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 to have that there must be i think some happy period in your childhood or some some escape in your childhood and what we realized making the documentary of life uncharted is that he never had that there was really nothing positive in his childhood and so my theory is that he never developed or even understood nostalgia he wow. never wow. felt that warm glow of nostalgia. So when I was a kid and I was massively into Doctor Who, which he described as the greatest tragedy of his life on a documentary, you can see the clip, he really did say that. Um, I had a huge collection of tat, you know, all the Doctor Who weeklies from number two onwards and all the, the Daypol toys and a huge amount of stuff. And he hated the fact that I had this collection. He just couldn't understand why it would bring any any joy to me. Uh, and so when I got about 11 or 12, he was like, right, you're grown up now. Get, get rid of all this. Because really? to him, wow. there was no sense of con continuity mm. or continued meaning. So whenever anybody would say to him, oh, you know, I'm grown up now, but your, your show's meant so much to me and I've still got my, you know, dinky SPV or whatever, he would sort of nod and acknowledge it and be pleased to hear it. But I don't think he understood it. And so as a result of all that, uh, and the reason I say that all is, he was the least nostalgic man you could possibly meet. A nostalgic, if you will. Yeah. And so he never kept anything. There was a wow. short period when I had Lady Penelope and Parker in my wardrobe in bin bags, but he <laughs> sent them off to auction. Wow. And, and he had the tiniest, tiniest display cabinet of a few mementos, a few dinky toys, a couple of tiny props here and there, uh, some of his brother's childhood teeth because his brother was killed in the war another another tragedy there I mean if, if, if me being a Doctor Who fan is the greatest tragedy of his life and I know how tragic he found obviously the, the loss of his yeah. brother that's that's pretty harsh um, so no he, he kept very little uh, and I, I, mean, I mean I'm surrounded by by Tat in my office down here um, mm. and some lo lovely mementos and collectibles but almost none came directly from him so d d does that like lead into I mean, he knew the value of his work, though, right? Or did he? Did he not think? Was he always moving on to the next thing, and it never, it never really, you know? Maybe he didn't. I, I normally find when people don't keep stuff like that, it's because they, they don't maybe feel that what they've done has a worth to idolise it in the form of you know, <clears throat> like keepsakes, yeah. memorables. Uh, I'm afraid to say you're spot on there. I mean, again, when we were doing research for the documentary, we had access to about thirty hours of interviews with his biographer, none of which were were intended to be used directly. Mm. Um, <clears throat> And in there, I mean, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but the, the interviewer, um, Simon Archer, said, you know, how do you feel looking back at, at each of these shows, especially knowing that so many people love them and they mean so, it means so much to those people. So take in the, a nostalgia there. So that part means nothing to him. And his response was, I always feel that I've failed. Uh, wow. I get to the end of each series and I look back and all I can see are the faults. And I just want to move on and correct those faults in the next one, do better and not not linger around this project, which is now complete, which I can no longer improve and is uh, is set in stone in, in a kind of set set in stone way that I, I don't like. So, no, he was always looking back negatively. Again, another reason to not develop that nostalgia. Mm. Um, so, yeah, always moving forward, always creating uh, and, and never stopping to to sit and rest and take a breath and go, wow, that was actually okay. I don't, I can't, I don't think he ever said that. Is, is that why he went on to the more live action shows, do you think? Do you think he, he felt that li puppets were too limiting for him and he wanted to... Oh, he, 
he hated the puppets. He 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 referred to them as little bastards. I mean, he, he, seriously, I mentioned Ben Hur earlier on because that's he wanted to be going out there making big live action epics, and then they ended up through whatever uh, weird uh, happenstance working with Roberta Lee making Twizzle puppet show, which she she already had fully financed, so it, that was going to be puppets whether they liked it or not. Yeah, and from that moment on, every technical advancement and every improvement that took them from the kind of very ropey days of Twizzle through to the kind of pinnacle of Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet, that was all born out of embarrassment. That was, you know, I must make this thing as good as it can be. Um, so it was always moving towards live action. And you can see that move, you know, the, the getting more and more detail, more and more detailed sets, better design, going from the large heads to the human proportions of Captain Scarlet into through the Secret Service where... I mean, either that is, let's do the hybrid thing because I'm so desperate to do live action or subconsciously, I'm going to do such a weird idea that I'm told never to do a puppet show again, <laughs> which was which is my thought. I mean, designing a kid series with Stanley Unwin at the center of it as a secret agent priest. I mean, it's a it's a bizarre choice <laughs> if, if it's something you want to continue doing for, for longer. So, yeah. yeah, no, human stuff was always a desire. Was that a... This is going to sound weird. Was it almost like a desire for validation? Like he would be seen as a serious filmmaker with human actors. The thing that always annoyed me about criticisms of his live action work was uh, newspaper critics who'd say, oh, the acting's as wooden as the puppets. I'm like, no, it isn't. That's yes, the stupidest, yes. laziest Hilarious thing lines. you can possibly Hilarious. say. It isn't. It was great actors. Involved. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, you could start listing them. But I mean, uh, um, Ed Bishop and Wanda Ventham and Co. in in oh. UFO and uh, Barry Morse in Space 1999. Yeah. Oh, God, there was a there was a man who should have been Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, so they <laughs> ju- just yeah. No, no. I, so he was he was seeking validation from his his peers absolutely in the industry, and I and I think you know despite the tremendous success of Thunderbirds, to him it was always oh I'm stuck doing these bloody puppets. Um, yeah. So he, he felt he couldn't be taken seriously in that way, and he wanted to do live-action movies. I mean, you know, got the chance with Doppelganger, Journey to the Far Side of the Sun, for your uh, American listeners, um, which you know I think set him on the path then of that's what I want to be doing. But if you yeah. again, you trace this all back to to his childhood. Um, speaking of being scarred in childhood, when his brother was killed in the Second World War, and he, they were notified. His mum's first response was, it should have been you. Oh. Now, as a, what would he have been then, a 13-year-old, when your hero brother is, is killed in combat and your mother says that, yeah. I, I think that set him up to a place where he, it was solidified in his mind for the rest of his yeah. life that he was never as good as this hero and he would be constantly seeking his mother's approval for the rest of his life. And I think that's where it came from. Um, and, and he and never got it. I mean, as far as I know, I never met her, unfortunately, but she, or uh, well, fortunately, yeah. possibly, but I hear you. She, you, know, she, uh, you know Catherine Tate's uh, Nan Taylor character? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Essentially, that was her, I'm told, that. by those that knew her. Um, wow, yeah. formidable woman. Uh, well, absolutely, but it, it set him up on this path of, you know, I, I, will, I, I can never get the approval that I need. So he was constantly seeking it, never finding it. Um, but the result is all this amazing, this amazing work yeah. with all these tales of positivity and aspiration and heroism. And 
so many of those characters influenced by his older brother uh, and so many of the shows with no mother figures uh, and and strong paternal ones because his father was a very gentle bullied and weak man um so it, there's so much of his his sad childhood which although means he never had nostalgia and could never look back fondly drove him to do all these amazing things uh, very quickly before we get to your second scar uh, jamie do, do you try to be like your dad or you try your best to be not like your dad you know sometimes when you have uh, you know different upbringings people will try and either i'm not going to end up being like that or i'm going to try my best to be like that what, what's your take on your father and, and how you develop as a human <laughs> uh gosh well, I mean, uh, I, I, certainly I feel like I'm looking like him more each day, um, <laughs> uh, which is sort of unavo- unavoidable with the particular haircut that I have. Um, I think, again, having having met with so many of his colleagues over the years and heard so many stories about the way he, he lived his life, I don't think through choice, but, you know, growing up in an era where you don't do all that introspective, namby-pamby, soft, self-reflective nonsense... Yeah. Um, it, it never kind of gained any awareness of the reasons he might behave the way he behaved. And sometimes yeah. he would be the first to, you know, really burn bridges with people. He, the, he had this real thing of loyalty. And if he felt slighted or like somebody was being disloyal, they were out. And they were out and they were bad mouthed and every door was slammed in their face. He said that pretty much that phrase to Brian Johnson, who is the only person I think he'd be welcomed back. Um, after yeah. Brian left to go and work with uh, Kubrick on 2001. Um, uh, Dad had him back for Space 1999 after a bit of a, a, a difficult one. So I, I, I certainly try to be a bit more measured uh, and less extreme. Um, but clearly, you know, looking at the, the way he created and the worlds and the thought that went into these things and the fascination and the positivity with the, the world around us and where we might end up, where we could end up if we, if we just keep aspiring, those things yeah. are such a positive influence. So yeah, it's a little bit of don't be like that, but do follow in that kind of that childlike wonder of, of the world yeah. around us and the potential of people. Fantastic. Well, listen, Jamie, let's get your second scar, please. The second thing that scarred you for life when you were a kid. Um, it is fairgrounds. Fairgrounds. <laughs> Tell us why fairgrounds scarred you for life. Well, Dad is responsible for the two things at fairgrounds <laughs> that scarred me for life. So uh, the the first incident was probably not long after the first viewing of ar- arachnophobia, I believe, and we went to a fair somewhere, <clears throat> sort of Oxfordshire, Berkshire, countryside, you know, one of those kind of farmer's fields where they'd recently cut, cut all the grass and the kind of, there's the, all the grass cuttings everywhere. It's kind of smells very summery. All that. I've got all these quite vivid yeah. uh, smell and taste memories. Um, and he thought it would be a great idea for young Jamie to go on the bumper cars with him. And uh, it was all very exciting and quite a thrill. And he was, you know, having fun spinning the wheel around and stuff. And uh, we got into a head-on collision. And my (laughs) immediate memory after that is very hot uh, taste around my mouth. uh, And pulling my head back from the dashboard where my mouth had struck it. Oh, my word. And strings of bloody saliva between oh. my mouth and the front of this bumper car. And, and then this, this, just this awful thing of, uh, of Dad tr- trying to look after me, feeling guilty, 
but also not wanting to make a scene. So rather <laughs> rather than ask them to stop, he was then trying to hold on to me, put his hand round my mouth to stop the blood and saliva coming out, and sort of gently manoeuvre us to the edge. Yeah. Um, but it was just I, I as, as a kid, I'd never never seen that amount of 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 blood or fluid come from myself before. <laughs> you know, I was the sort of first first sense that there, there's a kind of fragility to you uh and it was it was just so instant and so horrible i can almost sort of taste it now so yeah he, he felt terribly guilty um uh, would you get in a would you get in a dodgem anymore uh would you get in one of those cars anymore jamie or not i have done it since but i, yeah. I think it probably it probably took me four or five years after that to to even go near one um, yeah uh, but it's but it's so weird. I, 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 we'll get on. I, we'll sort of touch on. I think later on his his fears about what might happen to people um, when when things you know could go wrong and accidents and that kind of stuff. And yet in this circumstance, it seemed to completely pass him by. There was no awareness that something might go wrong with a loose child in a dodgem. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it was that was very 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 disturbing and such a vivid bloody memory for me. I uh, I, I was in a, I was in a bumper car once uh, in the Isle of Man actually where, where incidentally we bought my mum and dad bought me a Thunderbird two that was the wrong colour, but oh, the had, blue one disaster. The blue, I, had, I had the blue one yeah. Uh, <laughs> they had this bumper car thing. I was in the middle of like an after uh, tables where people had afternoon tea, and the bumper cars were going around while the parents sat off and had drank the tea and had a cake. And the older kids were taking the bumper cars out of the bumper car bit and driving through the cafe bit and terrorising the people. And I, at oh, age, and I, at age like six, thought I'll do the same thing. And it turned out that I wasn't as good a driver <laughs> as the older kids and immediately took out a granny having afternoon tea. And I'm fairly sure money had to change hands to stop there being more trouble with A payout. Yeah. Steve. I, I also, I'm going to complete the trilogy of... Um, nightmarish dodgem stories. I had a very similar experience to Jamie, but I'd actually forgotten about this. When Dave told us what your three scars were going to be, you know, you kind of forget that you've forgotten something, but I must have been about six or seven at the most. Um, It was a place over the water in Merseyside called New Brighton, which was famous for its fairground. And... My dad took me onto the dodgems, onto the bumper cars, and obviously I'm really excited as a six or seven-year-old to kind of drive. He let me kind of sit in the steering wheel seat. It lasted about 10 seconds before I decided to go straight head-on to another car. The next thing I remember is waking up in the doctor's office. And oh, my word. There was no, no pain. It was like being waking up from a dream. Completely baffled, my mum and dad. Wow. standing next to me and I still remember this kind of this guy who looked like James Burke the scientist except with a great big bushy moustache <laughs> kind of wiping up the blood that was spattered right down my kind of mustard yellow ringer t-shirt I mean, it's no, horrific my nose had just exploded knocked me out cold never went near a dodging bumper car again I think my 20s was the next time there I was brave go. enough to go on one but I wouldn't I literally I wouldn't go near one a fairground injury podcast would be a great spin-off for this, just if, you, if you're available midweek. But I mean, you know, um, 
they, uh, you know, and if you've been injured by, uh, had a Dodgem accident, maybe we'll get together and do like a, a, you know, you can do a lawsuit, maybe sue for a compensation at Scarred for Life 2 on Twitter. I mean, you know, fairgrounds are used so frequently in, in, in horror movies, etc., for, for being scary. Uh, have any of you guys ever been on like, um, like the ghost, the ghost train or the, did you find that actually properly scary when you guys were kids going on the, the, the ghost stuff? Well, that, that oh. is, that is the other way that dad scarred me for life. Um, <laughs> put you on the ghost train yeah um it, it probably would have been a year or two after the the dodgems incident uh so maybe he felt safe doing this but he he insisted that i that i i go and i didn't want to i i you could hear the kind of the sound effects and stuff from outside and all the spooky laughs and the silly music and stuff and at that age it just really put me off yeah um, but I, I think again as part of his sort of controlled scaring parenting whatever the hell that is i mean any psychologist feel free to tweet me i'd love to know um uh he he basically sort of very forcefully encouraged me to go on the ghost train uh, and it was it again it was one of these kind of traveling fairground type things uh and it, what probably wasn't that long or scary, but probably what lasted for a couple of minutes felt like an hour of my life. <laughs> and it was absolutely <laughs> horrific. Horrendous. And within seconds, I was in tears. And by the end of this thing, I was absolutely bawling. You know, that kind of un- uncontrollable... Uh, ugly crying, boring, I believe it's called, ugly Jamie. Crying. I mean, awful. But again, very similar to the Dodgems. Get him off, out the way, off we go round the back of the ride, away from the other people, and then the sort of the the calming thing. But I I was I was old enough to to be kind of aware that he maybe should have known better than to force me to do that. And I was I was <laughs> I was kind of wounded and upset. Uh, I mean, psychologically wounded, but so cross with him for right. for making me do it when I'd expressed how how much I didn't want to and I was frightened. Um, and it was worse than I'd imagined. You know, most times when you imagine how bad something might be, you know, a difficult encounter uh, or some kind of challenging piece of work, it's never quite as, as awful as you fear it might. Well, this bloody was. This was absolutely horrendous. Um, and even now, actually, I've got slightly sweaty palms. Just, yeah, just yeah. thinking about it's like, it. And a lot of the times, well, it's like a, it's like a 200-pound fairground worker in an ill-fitting skeleton outfit. Uh, chucking stuff at you, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, in, in the, when you're in there, and they were they were doing the kind of you know the jump out and the lean over and the kind of oh, drag yeah. stuff past you and the sort of sprayed cobwebs and all that kind of nonsense. And you know, now I probably would laugh, but then, yeah, he really he he really did me some emotional harm that day. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is the second scar, uh, the fairground with all the the, the, the myriad different uh, scary things in there that stay with you to this present day, uh, Jamie. Dave, you wanted to uh, uh, ask Jamie very quickly about um, launch sequences. I, I, I do. Passion yeah. of yours. I, I, it's, yeah, it absolutely is because a lot of the uh, Jerry's TV shows have very elaborate launch sequences, beautifully parodied in the Wilson Gromit film. Beautifully parodied mm. in it. Oh uh, yes. Yeah, but um, basically, why? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just because why all the launches? I, I did read somewhere that he was fascinated by the idea that uh, American B fifty two bombers were always on the runway, ready to launch nuclear attacks on Russia, and that was something that fed into oh. his uh, his launch sequence. I mean, I wonder if you have any insight on that, the, you know, why he had such elaborate launch sequences. 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, a technical fascination with um, with aircraft and with with flight and with space travel, particularly. Hmm. Um, and uh, and we found a bunch of letters that his brother Lionel had written uh, home while he was training for the RAF. Uh, they were training out in Arizona, where they used to send all the the British pilots to train where they were safe to do so. And lots of those letters had detail in them about launch procedures, the technology they were using, what they had to do before they could even, you know, push back on the runway, all that sort of stuff. So I think those those influences were there from, mm. from the very early days. And then every kind of bit of technology that he became interested in, he wanted to learn enough about it that he could tell somebody. Um, oh, wow. And that included, uh, you know, unknowingly, uh going on and on about uh, the, the 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 spacecraft escape systems at Cape Canaveral to a man that turned out to be captain Jim Jim Lovell um which he you know he was so fascinated by he didn't realize who this guy was he was like oh, you know do you know about the the escape systems uh, and it, anything that was kind of elaborate and mechanical he was just drawn to so i really think there's a kind of childlike um romancing of those machines you know that that they're so cool they're so big let's make the most out of them see exactly how they work even in mm. you know thunderbirds i'll go with the zero x launch which i think lasts for like 11 minutes or something with this thing is pieced <laughs> together i mean that is completely ridiculous but i think he found his found his kin in that with people like derek meddings and the rest of them because these guys are also big kids at heart who loved awesome machines and they all wanted to spend time just looking at how they worked. I think as a viewer, as a kid and as an adult, I think as a viewer, it, it worked because mm. it would be oh, the yeah. same footage recycled every episode. <laughs> but yes. that long launch sequence was like, it was the build-up. Oh, and yeah. Fantastic you knew, right? You knew yeah. it was all going to kick off. This is where mm. it was all going to happen. So when Thunderbirds or Stingray, whoever emerged from the water or ran into space as a kid I'd be like oh, here we go it's starting this is where the good stuff <laughs> starts now it was it just worked beautifully genius idea I I, ge- I genuinely want to be able to push a button and have me my sofa move me into the car I genuinely oh, God, want to yeah. do that <laughs> god yeah I do you know what I always wanted to do to jump down a hatch like the pilots in UFO oh yeah, I, yeah. always yes. I'm hankering to grab hold of a rail and just jump down a tunnel it just looks I'd, so satisfying. I'd, I'd want that musical accompaniment as well because that den, 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 it's so yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every, your entire life must be accompanied by Barry Gray if you're going to do anything yes, heroic. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Uh, Jamie, let's get your your third and final scar then uh, in in this week's podcast. What are you going for? Uh, well, from the fictional horror of the beginning uh, through to things that actually affected me, through to Dad's real life horror stories that he would use to try to keep me safe wow uh so he he obviously had a great mind for drama and catastrophizing yeah and he would spend a great deal of time describing to me the terrible things that might happen if i did something which he believed to be stupid was that like a a, a kind of he was like a storytelling public information film generator. Very much so. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 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 I mean, so it, again, it's a discovery I made very relatively recently in the last couple of years. 
the, the first thing I can remember of this is carrying scissors or a knife, which always had to be carried in a, in a fist that was at 90 degrees to the ground with the blade pointing <laughs> downwards. And he, and, and he went on and on. About, and the, but the more I failed to do it, the, the more elaborate the resulting fiction he would create would get. So it started, you might fall and, you know, you might, you know, you, you might cut yourself too. You might drive the blade directly into your eye and into your brain <laughs> and you will die a horrible death suffering in those last few moments. There's a lot of eyes out, isn't there, in the uh, 70s and 80s? It's funny, isn't Lots there? of having your eye out. There's, yeah. a, there's a great yeah. theme there, yeah. So, but th- these kind of warnings would come all the time. So um, uh, when I was at school, I, uh, I, I pl- played a bit of sport and I tried to play a bit of rugby. Um, every time he heard that I had played, I would get tales of necks being snapped and permanent paralysis, um, kid- kidneys being destroyed by the impact of a tackle. Uh, and sometimes he would kind of refer to these stories as if they're things he'd read in the paper the day before. And sometimes he would kind of just say, well, these things happen and they're awful. Um, yeah. And there, uh, he must have had a library of about 30 or 40 of these very particular things, these sets of circumstances, which he would just frightened me with uh, and, and speaking to my uh, my eldest half sister Linda uh, last year he did exactly the same right back to her childhood I mean li- you know Linda's a 19 he's consistent baby. yeah she, she was going on a school trip to France and they were flying and she said dad said to her well what, what if the what if the door comes open on the plane? Oh Jesus! <laughs> I know, uh, but Linda, as a, a very sensible, sharp twelve-year-old, uh, I think, said, um, "Well, it's, it's fine. We'll be sucked out, won't we?" So she was a bit more mad. <laughs> She's at peace with it. Me. Yeah, she was fine with it. Whereas to me, these things became quite scary. And even now, I was carrying scissors yesterday, yeah. and I'm carrying them out in front of me with the blade down. So it worked. It, the legacy horrible, lives on. Horrible images. Yes, what a great way for me to continue the legacy. <laughs> well, here's a question for you that kind of you know, ties into the theme of the podcast and the books that um, you know Dave and Steve have made. But how important is it for your imagination to be scared? Because one thing I you know I've got we've got like a four year old, uh, a, a eighteen month old, and a and a fourteen year old, and, and a lot of the stuff they watch isn't. There's no scary. Hmm elements to it now and I think a big part of this podcast is kind of picking up those things that were around us in our childhoods that were were pretty scary for kids to be watching but kind of less so now do you think it's quite important to have that element of scare whether it's either tales of walking around with scissors the wrong way around or even uh you know or just what making you watch a horror movie how important is it do you think I I mean I'm not trying to write a parenting guide here for sure uh I mean but I think there's something there is something good about being scared in a controlled way and and kind of learning to regulate your emotions. I'm not saying that every child out there needs to be uh as somebody earlier said inoculated uh, yeah. ag- against fear in that way, but there is there is something very positive I think about being exposed to it in that way. Um I, I and I th- I think you kind of the first time as a kid, you experience any strong emotion. It's a kind. It can be a bit overpowering, right? So if mm. you're actually frightened by something in the real world where something is inescapable, it's that's pretty challenging. And I wonder how much more damaging that can be than to be scared, you know, from behind a screen with your old man, where it's actually okay and you can press the power button at any time to turn it off and stop it in its tracks. 
So I'm, you know, yeah. as, as bizarre a choice as it was, and I'm not sure that he ever thought, gosh, I'm doing a great job of inoculating Jamie against uh, future fears. He's <laughs> on target. I, I think I think it's actually done done me a lot of favours. So I'm I'm all for it. So yeah, get that 18 month old in front of the uh, uh, the thing. I think. <laughs> yeah, I'll show the four-year-old the scissors, show the, the right way to hold them. Totally, That's good yeah, advice. Yeah. I, I can pass on the full the full horror of that story, if you like. Uh, no well, that problem. would be great. <laughs> uh, and and just leaves to go on the dodgems, and we're all sorted. Um, uh, Steve, you, you were going to talk, speaking of being scared, um, Steve has been putting in, in our WhatsApp, our Scarred for Life WhatsApp group, some horrific uh, still images of a, of a legendary uh, show that you wanted to talk about. Uh, am I right in calling it Candy and Andy? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, me, myself and Dave. Yes. I'm extremely curious about this one, Jamie. We, we are. I I, uh, I I didn't know anything about it until I was in a, a market and there was a second-hand bookstore and I picked up a Candy and Andy annual. I'm like, what the hell is this? If I could briefly describe it, it's essentially the children from the Village of the Damned uh, living with two serial killer pandas. That's how I describe it personally. I mean, <laughs> it's... Oh, that's perfectly accurate. Well, I mean, yeah. wh- what... <laughs> How? Why? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, accounts of how this thing came to be vary. Uh, it is absolutely bizarre. This photo comic. I mean, do go and look it up if you're if you're not aware of Candy and Andy. And if you are already and you try to uh, suppress that memory, then I'm terribly sorry for bringing this back up again. But I mean, this this thing came up immediately in the wake of Thunderbirds. So this tremendous success of this fantastic setup of this incredibly wealthy man and his hero sons and these amazing vehicles and they you know act so selflessly all over the world and in space and rescue people and then like you say yes mannequin children held captive by bipedal pandas above a toy shop <laughs> is it's just so terrifying and i've 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 heard dad talk about it and you could take his interview in one of two ways either that he came up with the idea or some of the ideas and he was trying to distance himself from it or others came up with the idea and he sort of waved it through at the time. And I, I really can't tell because he sort of tries to gloss over it so much. But that comic ran weekly for like two years, I think. Yeah, it was, it was a, a long-running comic. It was like a, it was like 150 odd issues. I think it was something like 150 yeah. issues. Yeah, like it must be responsible for home, so many nightmares. I mean, I, I I was under the impression it was a TV show. So you guys are telling me this is a comic yeah. that people just, would, would sit and read. Yeah. Just a photo comic, and and this poor man, the studio photographer for Century Twenty One, who took some of those incredible photos for for, for TV Twenty One <laughs> comic, those amazing newspaper <laughs> things of Fireball XL Five and Thunderbird Two, and you know Thunderbird One being held by a monster and all that. He was out there with those bloody mannequins and the pouring rain <laughs> propping them up taking <laughs> photographs for this, this shitty comic i mean it's wow it is so so bizarre and there's one image in particular which i think is supposed to be from the perspective of a fish uh while the kids are at, uh, at the river and it's looking up through the water at candy bending over looking down sinisterly and it's like she's just sent you down there with a pair of concrete boots she, it's it's like you you know you are drowning and your last visions of this is this this horrible horrible mannequin. But they they're there oh with fireworks and uh, and kind of sneaking up on their sleeping captors slash adopted panda parents whatever the bloody hell they are. 
<laughs> yeah, it's absolutely wonderful and absolutely horrendous at the same time. The, the Im- uh, if you follow us on Twitter, at Scarred for Life 2 on Twitter, we, we shall post up some photos of it so you can see exactly what we're talking about. Mm. Sorry, Steve. Oh, sorry. I was just about to say that. Uh, oh, the, oh, sorry, the one image that gets me is the, it's the two... The can it's the dolls on the stairs and the last line of the cast. I was going to par- say that one as the, well, Dave. The, the party was over. Yeah, because they're coming to kill you. Yeah, they are coming to kill you. Yeah. Those stairs. It's just. <laughs> okay. it's, it's I, I feel I I see that photo and I can feel myself backing away slowly <laughs> up the stairs as, as you should. As they I come mean, towards if me. You ever, if you ever see those mannequins and the bipedal <laughs> panda things, then definitely back away rapidly. Were, were the panda? Th- were the pan- Sorry, were, were the pandas people in costumes posing with the dolls? Or? <laughs> no, no, no. They were mannequins too oh right and they were big man- oh, oh wow okay. uh, and doug doug luke complained repeatedly that he would have everything beautifully set up and suddenly one of the bloody pandas would fall over <laughs> just as he was about to take this these <laughs> images so yeah well uh, there, there may be a, a small outing for candy and andy at the end of september Ooh. Uh, whoa what a scoop yes that, wow. is, that is absolutely an exclusive tease right there is that a threat else. jamie or a promise or what is it um, well, yes, whether you view them as furry friends or furry fiends, I suppose, uh, let's say it's a threat. <laughs> uh, well, listen, well there, well, there we have it. Um, watching horror movies at the age of six, fairgrounds, particularly the Dodgems and the Ghost Train, and health and safety fears, uh, your three scars, Jamie. It's been an, an honour to have you on yeah. Scarred for Life. We hope by sharing these uh, childhood horrors, it's eased the trauma and kick-started that healing process. Yeah. Uh, it's been brilliant to have you on as our inaugural guest. You've been fantastic. Uh, you. Jamie, please tell everyone everybody what have you got coming up what is new in bar obviously a reboot of uh, candy and andy what else <laughs> oh, well, is going yeah, on I that mean, people can catch what you're doing that's the true scoop uh, i mean everything we do is at jerryanderson.com um we've got books galore and all sorts of stuff coming up new thunderbirds audio dramas everything that kind of continues the legacy wherever we possibly can and kind of revisits our charters and allows us to go all nostalgic um and we've also got a film coming out uh in the next couple of months uh dr jekyll Starring Eddie Izzard wow. as the uh, eponymous Dr. Jekyll. Uh, Amazing. Which we hope will be in cinemas later in the year. So um, you can look out for that. Well, listen, it's been a real honour to have you on the podcast. Uh, and I'm sure you're doing your dad proud. So, uh, Jamie Anderson, thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. So, uh, thank you to Jamie Anderson. That's it for another week. We'll be back next week with another special guest sharing their deepest, darkest fears. You can get in touch in a ton of different ways. See the uh, Candy and Andy photos right now at Scarred for Life 2 on Twitter, Scarred for Life Book on Insta. Get the book yourself right now. Uh, drop us an email, contact at scarredforlifebooks.com. You have been listening to Scarred for Life. Thank you for joining us. And remember, do have nightmares. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>